What's up, everybody? How's it going? It is time for the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. All right, guys, the the queue is getting filled up, letting everybody into the room. So happy to have all of you guys here. Oh man, it is uh, it is it is popping off, guys. Welcome, welcome to the to the Happy Hour, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. We got people slowly and uh, surely funneling in. Right on, man. How's everybody doing today? Yo, what's up? Hey, how's it going, man? Right on. So we got we got the room filled up quite nicely, guys. Uh, welcome, everybody. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to check out the newly released episode today. I did an episode with uh, Sundas Khaled. It was a awesome episode. She's really really inspiring um really awesome person so hopefully you guys got an opportunity to check that out um so we got a we got we got some regulars back welcome dave back in the house we got hasib christian eric tom nicholas mark how's it going everybody um we've also got a uh, another special guest here with us today um we got shanta natali She's been on the podcast before. Hopefully, you guys got an opportunity to check out that episode. Um, she worked at CERN for a while. She's doing like crazy physics type of stuff at CERN. Um, Monica is here. Right on, man. Super happy to see everybody Everybody here. Um, so what's up, man? If you guys got a question, go ahead and type that question out. Put it right there into the chat. Uh, but... If anybody wants to go for it right now, you have the floor. So if anybody has a question, somebody is unmuted. We'll go with Sadaf right now since you are unmuted. Uh, go for it. And then while she's speaking, everybody, if you have a question, um, feel free to just type out, I have a question right there into the chat. That way I can hold your place in line. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm new here. Uh, I hope everybody's all right and can hear me properly. Yeah, I can hear you absolutely clearly. Okay, so this is my first time here and uh, I was really keen to come uh, in this hour. My question is uh, mainly related to a deep learning model that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, it's on Euroset data set and I'm doing a transfer learning on that. And uh, my question is mainly related to the accuracy on the test set that I'm using. So anybody who is uh, who has done something related to that, uh, I think uh, can give some insight into it. Um, what I have tried is to uh, do the resampling, uh, to balance the classes, to add the class weights. Um, and uh, I have also tried the fine tuning of the network, uh, but I haven't really been able to get a better accuracy in my results. So I was just wondering if anybody has got any other ideas to try with. Yeah, so I know precisely <laughs> things about deep learning. Sorry, uh, I know precisely zero things about deep learning. So um, anybody here know anything about deep learning? Like unmute yourself and, and go ahead and help her out. Uh, because so, so Duff, did, would, did you say you're trying to do transfer learning on your set? Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, I am trying to do uh, transfer learning using the ResNet model uh, on the Euroset dataset. And uh, my accuracy on Euroset is really good. Like I'm using the Euroset all dataset, which, which has th all the 13 bands. 
and uh, it's it's about 96% so it's not too bad but later on i need to test my model on a new data set which is again images from sentinel 2 uh, but they are uh, compressed in a different way uh, because uh, they are basically tiff files which are of different sizes some some of them are 20 by 20 some of them are 60 by 60 some are 120 by 120 so what i'm doing that i'm only reading the three files which are the actual rgb frames uh, changing their size to 64 by 64 so that it can use my model and uh, then trying to uh, get the accuracy on it and that accuracy is really poor uh, they are basically 100 images and my accuracy is about 30% on on them so i i think four or five of them are predicted to be the right classes the other ones are not so that's that's really not good and uh, um i did try various techniques on it like uh, i did try uh, fine tuning uh, my model um where i'm training the whole layers uh, i also tried adding the class weights because i can see that my classes are quite imbalanced um in a way that uh, i am only um my classifier is only there to differentiate between the nature uh, the man made and the nature classes so they are basically boolean classes not the traditional 10 classes which are given over there so my task was to only differentiate between the two and uh, that has made my data set quite imbalanced so due to which i have tried uh, oversampling um undersampling uh, class weights but none of them has really improved the accuracy so any idea i'm going to make a suggestion um this could take more than one show and uh <laughs> what what might be better is if sadaf and i went off line over the weekend a little bit and then maybe brought a story back next week oh i love that yeah what's your benchmark accuracy Excellent idea. It's just going to get um it's going to get into a lot of talk stuff and I have more questions than answers at this point. But um why don't you say you and I'll just see what we where we can get and I promise everyone true confessions if we completely bomb. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, that's no problem. We can discuss it next week and uh, do you want to uh, can we communicate over the email? Would you like to communicate over the email in the meantime with your questions so, and So to save time on Harper's show, I'm going to send you a LinkedIn request right now and we can start chatting over LinkedIn. All right, yeah, sure. That's that's uh, that's fine with me. So perfect. Yeah. Right on. Well, hopefully you get the help you need set up. Thanks for asking your question. I apologize if uh, if nobody here was able to answer that. Um all right, so we got a lot of people funneling into the into the into the room. Wow, 40 of you guys. This is awesome. First question I see on the docket here is question Christian he's got a question on data engineers looking to move towards data science Christian go for it yeah so i made the mistake about posting on an interesting article i saw around data engineers and how we need more of them than data scientists and i guess the whole of linkedin assumed that i was some data engineer whiz or something so several people reached out to me about how do you go from data engineering to data science and i told all of them i'm not the person you need to show up here to the uh, office hours and uh, guessing that most of them wouldn't I decided I'd ask the question for them. So one question I got was specifically from a team um, 
a team lead of data engineers. And she says, you know, for herself and for her team, she's thinking about they, they all kind of want to skill up towards data science. And so I kind of have a twofold question. Number one, is that, is that a common thing that you guys hear? Number two, why would that be a good thing to do? And then I guess third would be her question. How do you do that? Definitely. I, I, I'll open this up to, uh, to, to, to Joe, because I think he's the, the, uh, the man for that. I think he is here. Yes, he is. But I'd say, man, like, as far as I'm concerned, data engineering is data science. It's just focusing on a different aspect of it, which is moving something from one place to another so that somebody else can do something with it. Um, so, so sorry, concerned, was, data engineering is data. So it's a question to move from data engineering to data science. Sorry. Kind of jumped on it in the middle of that. Yeah. Specifically the question was like, what is the best path if they're wanting to skill up in the direction of what I have to assume is more analytics and statistics? Um, but they, the phrase that was used was going from more of the data engineering to the data science side, not only for themselves, but for their team. And so, of mm-hmm. course, I have some questions around whether or not that's, I'm sure there's probably a lot of it depends of uh, what you're trying to do, but wondering how common that is and, and how somebody might go about doing that. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think my, uh, my friend Matt Housley might have it opinion on this too. I think, how would they go about doing this? Um, I would think that a data engineer has an advantage in a sense where they they understand the data problems, hopefully. <laughs> so, um, and then it's just a matter of making models or, um, you know, or analysis off of those. So, um, but the skills you would need, uh, I think it depends, as you point out, there might be analytics that need to be done, in which case having good uh, brushing up on stats isn't the worst idea. Um, learning machine learning these days is I would say, a lot easier than it used to be. So if you wanted to learn, leverage that, that's also a thing. And then there's, I think there's also like a third path too, where it's not even a data scientist per se, but like a machine learning engineer that's becoming a more and more of a, a viable career path. And so I think there's a, you know, that, that might be a, an option to try out too. So yeah, yeah, but part of what I would say is uh, focus on the things that maybe the data scientists aren't so good at. And you might want to do this through collaboration. So like find a good data scientist who maybe needs some help productionizing, help them productionize their models, actually teach them about productionization and have them teach you about data science, like collaborate and learn a lot of the statistics, you know, study the math, study all the examples you can find online, work through Coursera, but then actually work with the data scientist in the production environment to figure out how to be a data scientist day to day, but one who can also deliver production because you've been a data engineer. And so you know how to spin up Docker containers, for example, or how to set up workflows and airflow and those kinds of skills that come, that are not easily learned that you really have to pick up on the job as an actual working data engineer that makes data science successful. But Matt and I are also people that moved in reverse. Like we would yeah. <laughs> recovering data scientists, right? So. People yeah, might. I've actually heard that narrative more than the other way around. So I guess that was kind of why I had that second part of the question is yeah. why would they be doing that? Is that as a maybe a progression that they just want to go down or is there some common reason that that happens, you know? So I'd say like personally, man, I, I feel like people think that there's like a progression, like first year data analyst, then you do this, then you do this, and then become a data scientist. And that's like the top of the mountain. I don't, I don't really think that. I don't view it that way. Like I don't think there's a progression from going to data scientist to then machine learning engineer, and yeah. data engineer, you know what I mean? Uh, I think they're all on level playing field. They just take care of different aspects of, of the, the life cycle. So if somebody is a data engineer who wants to transition into data science, I think along the lines of what Joe and Matt were saying is just do code long sessions with a data scientist, right? Like pair programming sessions, try to understand 
how they think about the problem and how you know they're using the data to inform how they're going to build a model. Um, I'd love to hear from uh, Dr. Tully. Yeah, it's, it's Tully, by the way. Har- oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, hey, yeah, this is my first time. Nice to be here. Um, I just wanted to say that as, uh, it's also important to draw the distinction. So data engineers sometimes refer to um, sort of people who, uh, engineers who will handle the ETL of data, right? Uh, the data warehousing, you know, the architecting the the data um the, the structures or the databases where, where the data lives. So um, I have generally used the word in that sense. And so if you're going from that definition of a data engineer to a data scientist, then your journey is a bit different than if you're going from more of a software engineer to a data scientist, which I think is what we've been kind of talking about. So there's that. And then uh, I totally agree with you, Harp, that it's uh, uh, with like machine learning engineer, especially, so, which is my title right now uh, is machine learning engineer. It's um, just a different part of the life cycle, right? Like I'm a data scientist. Um, I like doing the end-to-end, but I sort of specialize uh, on the machine learning part of it. Some interesting comments here in the in the chat. I want to open it up to Russell, and then after Russell, we'll go to Carlos on this topic. Hi, evening, everybody. Um, I'm here from London in the UK. Uh, Russell, I think you muted yourself. Fine, I did click it. Is it? Can you hear me now? Yeah, can you hear you now? Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so uh, evening, everybody. I'm I'm here from London in the UK. Uh, my quick comment was just from uh, a data engineer's perspective um, uh, versus a, uh, a data scientist, um, given that you've got the extra insights into the data already, just be careful that you don't start to fit the work you do in the data science realm um, to uh, to match some predispositions, um, expectations, so that you you know you kind of force uh, uh, an anomalous result. Um, you know, um, make sure that you do conform to um, uh, best practices for for data science. Learn from a good data scientist rather than just jump in and and do what seems to, to feel like because it may not necessarily be the right thing. Thank you very much, Russell. Carlos? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's funny to hear people trying to go from engineering to science because it's almost like I'm tired of doing all the deep technical work. I want to talk to people again. And I'm like, oh, every business, like every job ad I see does the exact opposite. They want people who know, like, I want you to set up all your own AWS instances and also all your own APIs and also all your own Docker containers and also infrastructure as code and also make sure all of it's super auditable and also be really good at stats. And it's like, dude, you need like four jobs. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear that question. Um, I think what people can do is just emphasize the experience they have communicating with business people because they will just have this idea in their head that the engineers are like behind the screen and they're not super good at explaining problems, stuff like that. But that's not true. Like you've worked with product managers, like you've explained requirements you needed gathered. And like, you just have to like twist your resume to be more communicative because they're just assuming that you're like super technical, but like a hermit, which is like super weird of a stereotype to have, but that's like kind of what they're coming from. So really it's just about spin. I really don't think you have to worry about any technical aspects of it. And then there's another part of that question that I really liked. That was the, why would somebody be interested in doing that? And I think that why is specific to the person, right? My favorite part about data science is it's like the business aspect of it. Like I like making money and I like, figuring out how to use data to make money. Um, that's just, that's what I enjoy doing. Like, I mean, building models and stuff, that's cool. Like that's a part of it, but I mean, I, would, I like the business aspect of it. Dave, what do you think about that? Why would somebody want to make the shift or what are some reasons somebody should consider 
whether or not data science is the right path for them. Yeah, I kind of added a, a thought on this into the chat session, which is really this idea of like, what do you mean when you say data science? Because at one end of the spectrum, I'm with you, Harpreet. These days, I like using data to make money. And if you want to have the biggest impact on the bottom line, you got to be close to the business people. And you're not necessarily doing a lot of hardcore engineering. And if you love hardcore engineering, that might not necessarily be the path for you. So something more along the lines of machine learning engineer might be better. So I think it really needs to, you really need to talk about how do you want to use data to affect the business? If you think of it from an engineering perspective, which is totally cool, by the way, then maybe data engineering, machine learning engineer is probably better for you. If you want to use analytics and affect larger parts of the organization, you're probably going to be doing a lot more data storytelling and more applied stats and that sort of thing and working a lot with business people. And as I indicated in the chat, a lot of data scientists, a lot of analytics pros these days are getting burned out specifically because they're dealing with business people a lot. No offense to the business people, just is what it is. So ask yourself along that spectrum, how far do you want to go? How much of the interaction do you want to have with the business people? These days I'm over here, but early in my career, I was over here. I didn't want to deal with business people at all. I just wanted to write code all day, every day. Based on comments, Harpreet, um, I'm going to volunteer Manpreet to chime in. Manpreet, go for it. Um, no, I had this discussion that I started my career as a data engineer. So how much value or importance does these title have when you are starting your career as a fresher? You're, either you're a data scientist or a data engineer or machine learning engineer. So what importance does this titles have when you're building your career as a fresher? So look, man, titles mean absolute shit. Titles don't mean a goddamn thing. Skills do, right? Skills is what matters, right? That's what is going to help you move up the level, right? Getting skills moves you up the competence hierarchy, which then will move you into any position that you want. So titles, I don't think matters. Does anybody have any else? Just, well, else I, think, that? I think in agreeing with you though, it's about the spin, right? Like on your resume, if you put data engineer, they will think something different than if your resume says data scientist, but you can un, you can uninfluence their bias with like your story. So yeah, I mean, I, you're correct, Arpreet, but like there are always a real like, person reading paper effect of what it says on the paper. Yeah. If, I can um, speak. Oh, go Nicholas, go. I just wanted to say um, on paper, I have eight years experience as an engineer, not a data engineer, a project engineer, an electronics engineer in practice. Um, a lot of that was doing a lot of the things that you would expect to see under a data scientist's um, job role and responsibilities. I really struggled to find roles back in data science. Um, despite the fact that I could spin skills, responsibilities, achievements, quite often people would just look at the title and it would be an uphill battle to, so, I mean, that was just my own experience with that. And it took me working with career coaches to work out how to properly spin my career experience. So I think if you're working with titles that are really sort of odd and, and out of the ordinary, it is something to be aware of. In my limited experience, as long as uh, I've had many titles that weren't data scientists, but I was able to just sprinkle in doing data science type work to solve these problems, but I had the different title and that worked as far as spinning your story and your, in your experience uh, descriptions. Okay, Nicholas, what were some of the key takeaways that you had from, 
from the career coach with, with respect to that. And then after that, I'd love to hear from uh, Shantana. Um, some of the key takeaways that I had were focusing on, uh, focusing on actually, so typically um, you see a lot of results-driven um, emphasis on CVs, but I was told to actually focus a little bit more on process so that I would have a means of demonstrating that actually I know the kinds of things that you would do as a data scientist and I could demonstrate some of that. Um, so I tried to build a little bit of that into my CV. I'm not entirely sure it was all that effective. Like I said, it, it took me quite a long time to break back into a more conventionally titled data role. Um, possibly not just because of the title, maybe because I was absolutely shit at interviewing, who knows? Um, but, you know, something to bear in mind. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Yeah, let's hear from Shantana. Then after Shantana, I'd love to hear from Monica and Giovanna on this title. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to go back to Manpreet's uh, uh, question about as a, as a fresher, right? As someone who's just entering the field, how does the title impact what you do? Um, and I think to answer that, um, what will be more helpful is for you to look at the job descriptions and talk to people with different title, with these different titles to figure out exactly what they do and figure out for yourself what you want to do, what you see yourself as doing, and then sort of develop those particular skills and try to spin your story in that sense. Um, because you're you're not trying to battle like you know any any stigma or whatever comes from a certain title as you're shifting to another title. You you have an open canvas, so you can figure it out. Thank you very much, Shantana, Monica, or Giovanna. Yeah, um, as far as the title goes, I agree. Titles don't really mean very much, um, especially across different organizations. A data scientist might be one thing at one organization and a completely different thing at another organization. So if you have the ability to maybe do some kind of like job shadowing, like if you're in a company and you wanna stay in that company, but kind of become a data scientist, really understand what that means by sitting down with somebody and figuring out what tasks they actually perform on a daily basis. Cause you might, you know, have one thing in your head and you sit down with that person and you're like, Oh, this is not what I thought I was going to be doing. Never mind, I don't want to do this anymore. And just keep in your own circle or maybe move on to, to a whole different role. So that's sitting down and doing a job shadowing, I think would be a very beneficial. Thank you, Monica. Giovanna? Yeah, I, I just want uh, to share that as Monica write on the chat, uh, it's very confusing uh, for many people, um, for the recruiters sometimes, what is the meaning of a data scientist or what is the role of the data scientist? So I think the important uh, thing here is to know what you want to achieve, what you want to learn or to be. And as um, you can start doing this job and then you can uh, learn more about the, the skills that you want to develop. So at the end, it depends on your, in your goal, in your vision statement. I think this is the important thing that if you have the opportunity of being a data engineer now, okay, this is a great experience uh, for your resume is going to be great. And, but you can continue learning what you want to achieve. Thank you very much. So I think we got two questions out with that, with that one session there. So Christian, I hope that answered your question. And then I also hope that answered Manpreet's question. So next up, I've got, um, I'm just going to read out the list that I've got 
for questions so far. I've got Mark, then Megan, then Anna, then John, then Ashen. So you guys hang around, wait your turn, and uh, we'll definitely get to your question. I noticed that Ayush is unmuted. So if you want to contribute, let me know. Oh uh, Yeah, actually, I had a follow-up question uh, to Manpreet's question. Like, as you said, titles don't mean anything, but if somebody reads my resume and he sees a data engineer, I'm sure that he has, uh, he or she has a particular perception that, okay, this guy is doing this sort of work. So, for example, if I'm a data engineer and I've done more of a data analyst kind of work, so is it okay that I write a data analyst on my resume rather than the title given by the company? Or, yeah, how does it work? I mean, you can just, describe, that's what an interview is for and that's what the resume is for, right? So, I mean, I wouldn't just make up a job title on your resume, like, it's not for that, but you can describe your role, right, on your resume and talk about the work that you did. And then when you're brought into the interview, you can even bring that up as well, right? Or you know, you, I'm, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, if you need to write a cover letter, write a cover letter to explain that, right? So no, there's there's ways to, to get around that. Christian, go for it. I was just going to say, if you have an instance where the title really doesn't match what you're doing, uh, I might say that's an exception. So I had a role one time where the title the company gave had nothing to do with what we were actually doing. And so my resume, based on what I knew about the industry, I put what that title probably should have been. And so uh, just keep that in mind. You're not beholden to somebody else's moniker, uh, especially if it doesn't match the actual function. This is also super true in like certain industries like consulting where your title will be associate and that will be 50 jobs under that title. And you're just like, okay, I have to self-label here because also associate is junior in some places and the seventh level up at others. So it's hilarious how like funny titles can be by industry. You got to self-title to some extent. Yeah. Self-title and describe, right? Make sure you're just describing what you did adequately. Wonderful. Um, Nicholas, do you have another point to add to this? Yeah. Be very careful with self-titling. Um, it's a little bit of a judgment call because some places when they're running checks, um, references and that kind of thing. Um, we'll see that as if you're lying about your job role. Others won't. It's a little bit of a judgment call. Um, I've worked places where that was one of our hiring practices and we had our central recruitment team would, would just do background checks and dismiss people based on what has happened. And um, for people who were legitimately coming in for referrals who had self-titled, um, it's just something to, to be aware of. Thank you very much, Nicholas. All right, cool. So let's go ahead and move on to the next question. we got Mark. Mark. Yeah. So a couple of months I asked uh, about, you know, how to bridge the gap between data science and engineers, because my, my role sits in between that. And now that I've kind of worked for a few months and done some projects and actually put some data science projects into production, I have like a more narrowed question about that, where I think the crux of the challenge I'm dealing with is that I think, and I would love to hear other people's feedback, is that I think, you know, the type of data structures we work with are pretty different. Um, and specifically, like the engineers are building web apps, at least for my company. And that has a totally different type of, of data structure. While I also do analytics where we want a flat file tabular where it's easier to put into like a, a data warehouse or do SQL or some other type of analytics on that. And so my question is, since my role is actually taking those analytics and putting it into production, is how do you find that happy medium between working with these flat files versus doing more complex uh, data data structures. And so to give context for my recent project, 
you know, I was, I was working on this NLP pipeline. You work with SK Learn, you got to use arrays to kind of put, put things uh, through there. But at the end, I need to get it working through a web app and it needs to be like some complex format. And so um, building code that can be used for both teams, like where's that happy medium between, you know, data science best practices and engineering best practices? OJS. I would just, I don't have a huge answer for this. You should try to do a lot of research on the engineering frameworks, 12 factor apps, great link, easy to read on like how engineers think about applications. Cause you might be thinking about applications differently than they do. But I don't have an answer mm-hmm. to your question. Yeah. And Mark can, I was thoroughly confused by that, to be absolutely honest. In the end, all analytical techniques require a matrix of data one way or another. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of confused when you're talking about data structures. What do you mean, like JSON versus a tabular representation? Yeah. What are you, so, what are you talking um, about? Yeah, that's more so a reflection of me still trying to learn on the engineering side. Um, hence why I'm asking this question. I think uh, the way I can put it is that, um, uh, for example, like if I'm doing analysis, I'm going to use like a pandas data frame, right? But for the engineers, when they're when I'm reading their scripts, they're using like a dictionary with named tuples and doing all these different co- components where it's not necessarily flat. Um, and I think that's where I'm trying to trying to get at. Yeah. So if I understand you correctly, this is something that I've had to deal with quite a bit. So for example, uh, we had a telemetry system at a previous job that recorded all of the web telemetry clicks and scrolls and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. They stored that as JSON in an Elasticsearch cluster, which Done nothing for me, right? I can't do anything with that. So I had to pull the data out, transform it and work with it. And if you're referring to like this idea that they don't want to use pandas in particular because they want to use something else, that's going to be, in my experience, quite a, quite a bit of a hard sell. Engineers mm-hmm. tend to be prima donnas. I'm going to say it. It <laughs> used to be me when I was a software engineer and all software engineers I've ever worked with, they're all prima donnas. They like to write code the way they like to write code, unless you can provide them a very convincing explanation why not. So I would tend not to worry about the actual code itself insofar as your works and your work in analytics goes. Um, basically, they can work with a tabular representation if they really want to. And you shouldn't care about how they actually write the code to work with a tabular representation. At best, what you could do is try and work with them to make sure that you guys can communicate with data in a way that works optimally for both of you. And if they're all off on JSON, you might want to work and say, hey, look, you know, I know you guys love this document format thing, but it doesn't really work for me. Is there something we can do to kind of make it so that we can both be highly productive? And I think a challenge that I, I'm having is that I, I wear both hats. So I'm actually adding to their code base. So I have to conform to them. But then also I'm trying to get them like, hey, we created this new product feature. I want this data into our SQL database so we can actually like see like, is our product feature actually cool and people using it? And that requires a different format. And so I'm like, I'm wearing two hats, but I'm like, there has to be a better way. Can I wear both hats? Or is it just kind of like, I just, just like, it has to go with what's, what's the majority kind of rule kind of thing. Yeah. um, Okay. Speaking as a former software architect, you should write the code the way the engineers write the code using all the standards and frameworks that they use. Sorry. That's, you should, you just gonna need to learn both if that's the case um, more than likely, because the last thing you want is to dilute the integrity of the software engineering for your considerations only. That's not a good idea either. So yeah. Um, and I, I, I feel you, especially if you're like, hey, I want to put in some telemetry in this web app so I can push data to a database so I can look at it. 
And the engineers are like, eh, I'm not interested in that. So you have to go do it yourself to make sure it happens. Been there, done that. And guess what I had to do? I had to write code in the format expected by the software architecture because to do so would be, quite frankly, just not a very good idea. That, that role, by the way, is uh, sometimes referred to as an integration engineer or a data integration engineer or something like that. Do you have any experience working with this type of data? I'm, I'm assuming, Mark, that it, it's you got data coming into like a NoSQL database and you're finding it just challenging to... <laughs> How'd you know it's NoSQL? I mean, 100% is NoSQL. So, yeah. <laughs> so that I guess the challenge is then, okay, how do you go from NoSQL to then, you know, something that is more amenable to analytics? Um, have you heard of like the, the ELK stack, Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana? I don't know if that's going to be helpful or not. Um, but I mean, if anybody else has experience working with this, I'm willing to bet Matt, Joe, or Shantana might have more. Well, to let's make some broader comments about communication between software engineers and data analysts. And so one of the problems we see consistently is that people developing the software aren't even really following best practices for software engineering. And they're not thinking about, about analytics at all. And so you at least want to be communicating with them and saying, hey, this data has value let's figure out you own the structure, but here's some things that would be really helpful. So, so here's an example we saw, we saw online classified ads and they were using like dates as a key in JSON structures. <laughs> <David's> <laughs> laughing. Total nightmare to parse that. I mean, it, it's just, you need like a million case statements or something in SQL to deal with this kind of stuff. And so at least you can gently nudge the software engineers and say, okay, it, it, it's still going to be nested data structures, but change the structure a bit so that we can do something with the analytics. And then we're going to help you by feeding back into your app and helping you out. So I, I think one of the things we advocate is for kind of end-to-end -end analytics, like cradle to grave data structures, where at least the software developers are thinking about how the data is going to be consumed, even if they're still prima donnas and still going to do things their own way. Yeah. And I think the guard really to that too is putting up good data pipelines, right? So, I mean, that's what Matt and I do all day. Um, but in, in theory, uh, analysts, data scientists should have a central hub where they just pull their data from. You shouldn't be, have to pull it from source systems, for example, and that data should be analytics friendly, data science friendly, et cetera, et cetera. So no dates for keys. That's stupid. Don't do that. Um, and, uh, you know, a million other things that could trip you up. But yeah, communication is pretty key. We, we tend to find like semi-structured data, like JSON, like something like Snowflake or BigQuery is like the perfect, uh, perfect place to put that because it's queryable SQL or hook a notebook up to it or whatever. So we're big fans of that. But pipelining solutions to get the data in. I mean, that's there's like a bajillion solutions out there to do that these days. So it's easier than it used to be. Mark, was that helpful at all? Uh, super, super helpful because uh, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what's the next approach? Like I'm wearing both hats, but like which one do I focus on or how much do I wear which one? Trying to get a good sense of it. And so that was, that was very informative because, um, yeah, I, I don't want to break their code base. That, that's because those revert my code back. So, um, uh, so this is really helpful. Anybody else have any experience working with with this type of scenario? Uh, definitely go for it. I see Greg is in the building. Greg, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah. Um, hey, guys. I, I wanted to ask a question to Mark uh, because on my end, um, what I'm dealing with is, you know, existing systems that are built on, you know, JSON files, which is, you know, the Amazon built-in um, system, which is ION, uh, which is a superset of JSON. Um, 
So what we've done is leverage uh, data engineers who created pipe automated pipelines that transformed any new data, JSON data, uh, and made it flat for us to be easily queryable uh, for analysis. So I don't know how much lift you have to maybe automate that transformational pipeline for any you know continuing data that comes in. It transforms into a more manageable tabular form, really, uh, format that you can use. Um. We're a 65-person startup, so um, I'm I'm gonna be the one that ha I I basically write write a helper function to <laughs> to okay. turn it to whatever format they, they have into what I need to use. And I actually try to when I'm in the code base, I try to avoid using the the flat files unless I have to. So like for example, I was using SK Learn and it says I need an array or data frame. All right, I I have to use that, but um, but any other time, uh, it's it's so smart to roll up my sleeves and figure it out, which is fun. Mark, yeah, I guess it's maybe it's an opportunity for you to think automation, maybe, um, you know, how to transform it automatically so you don't have to keep coming back to it every time. And then, you know, this way you don't, you don't break the software engineer uh, structure uh, and you have a transformative solution that helps you on the other side. So Mark, I really like you, that suggestion. Mark, do you just have a lot of uh, columns? that need to be created? What, what structure are you trying to get your NoSQL into? Um, so I think because we're a startup, we actually don't have, we're like a big component of my job is actually getting access to more data. And so it, it's not like a high dimensionality problem. Um, okay. I, th I think the thing is like the way they originally structured it, because um, they, as a startup, you know, they're trying to gain value as quickly as possible. They built a web app and now they're like, all right, cool, analytics now. Um, and so the challenge is not necessarily that it's so many columns, but it's like nest it five times. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have yeah. like self-join to unnest and, and SQL. So I got some pretty gnarly SQL queries. Like I can get it to work, but my next goal is like, all right, I got to work for myself, but how can I get it to work for the rest of the company so they have access to this data as well? I'm just curious. Uh, I've never had to use pandas that way or one of the pandas-like tools, but can you... In import a NoSQL into pandas and go from there maybe? I think you'd probably need to use something like Elasticsearch in this case. And I think you can use Elasticsearch in, in a Jupyter notebook. Elasticsearch is kind of built for queries on, on this type of data. That's okay. understanding. So could a solution be for you in this case, um, possibly or maybe replicating that NoSQL database into a sandbox for your own and then building a pipeline that takes that NoSQL data and the flat files or whatever representation you need, have that be in a database with whatever tables you need um, and just design appropriately. Is, is that? Um, cool? I think that this is starting to go out of my scope of understanding, which is the awesome place to be at because um, there's a nice learning place. But I think the, the challenge is that, I guess though how I understand it, kind of like how our kind of pipelines work is that we pull from our database that engineering is set up, it's not necessarily a database, but store of data, it goes through all these different pipelines and transformations to like a GraphQL kind of thing. So like after this system in, start this X, Y, Z. And then at the end, they're like, all right, now put this into BigQuery. <laughs> and so um, it, it seems that it, the best way I can think about it is BigQuery was done at the end of a, it's like not necessarily afterthought, they're like now like, all right, it's, it's, it's become a business problem now, we need BigQuery. So it wasn't like baked in, it was, it was added onto it, if that makes sense. 
Dave, I saw you were unmuted there and Joe as well. Yeah, I was just I was just going to suggest that, Mark, you can ping me if you want, because I've built many, many pipelines to basically source data in suboptimal formats for analytics and then transform them and push them into data stores where I could use them efficiently for analytics. So you can ping me on LinkedIn if you want. Yeah, hit me up too. We uh, work in Google Cloud like all day, so cool. No, that, we can do a conference call. It'd be fun. That that would be great. I'll reach out to to both of you because this is one of my OKRs for for this quarter's <laughs> figuring no, this no, further out. Like, this is literally the kind of stuff that like, Matt and I do every single day. So perfect. Add, add and me. Dave's awesome too. So yeah, add me to no, that. No, 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 no. I'm not awesome. I just hack things together just so that we're clear. <laughs> Hey, well, if you guys get this coordinated, please invite me. I want to be there. All right, guys. Uh, Mark, thank you. That was a great question. Great discussion. All that, guys. So next up, we got Megan. Then after Megan, we got Anna, John, and then Ashen. So, and then after Ashen, I probably won't be taking any more questions because it's um, probably going to be running over time there. But Megan, if you're still around, go for it. Yeah, I'm still here. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. It's my first time here. So um, I uh, am looking to make a career change, actually. Um, I have a bench science PhD and love data and um, have been trained to think about data, but lack um the specific coding skills that would be needed to get into data analytics. And so I've been trying to figure out the best way to pick up those skills. Um, and um, I, you know, I have been working through some online courses right now and also uh, talking to my sister-in-law who does business analytics. And um, she had pointed me to Dave's page. So I just got hooked up with that and haven't fully explored those resources yet. But I'd also run across um, boot camps. You know, Google puts up these ads and I was like, well, is that something I should consider? Is this a reasonable and efficient way to get these skills as opposed to trying to do it myself with these online resources? Um, but I've been getting mixed reviews, you know, both from what I can find online about, you know, the specific company involved with the one I'm looking at and, um, you know, from my sister-in-law who says that she hired some people who had been through a boot camp and was not very impressed. So what's the general feeling out there about um, boot camps and then about how to pick up these skills um, to get into data analytics in an efficient um, and financially reasonable way? I'd love to hear from Shantana, Tom, <laughs> and Dave on this. Yeah, happy to jump in here. Um, so uh, did you say bench science? Yeah, I wasn't sure how much data you wanted. So geochemistry. So I've mostly worked in Excel. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question. Yeah, because um, a PhD to a PhD in, in STEM to data science is a pretty, uh, you know, common transition, right? But everyone's journey is different because uh, what you do during your PhD, how much coding you get, and all of that is very different. Um, and that's probably why you're getting mixed uh, opinion or mixed signal on this is because it works for some people and it doesn't. So I, I came from a particle physics uh, PhD, so I'd code, coded in C++, never you know, got the formal training, but sort of had to learn to code as I was doing my research. Um, so it was relatively simple. I mean, it took a while, but it was relatively simple to get the, the machine learning engineer title, even though I've never, you know, I'm not a CS uh, person. Um, but with, uh, if you've worked primarily in Excel, but you have good sense of, you know, data, data and how to validate data and, you know, the summary statistics and all of that, uh, probably uh, analytics type of role 
uh, makes the most sense uh, would be my guess. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take this offline as well. Um, but for that, there isn't really a good boot camp as a thing. Like there, there are lots of like data science boot camps, right? Um, that'll sort of teach you a little bit of regression and a little bit of classification and all of that. Um, so for analytics, I would just say it's actually pretty easy to go from Excel to SQL um, and, you know, so on and so forth. So I guess I, I put a lot of emphasis on like self self teaching stuff um, and just like asking asking people who have sort of been through that journey. And if you do want to go into data science more, um, and you want to pick up, you know, you want to learn the different kinds of machine learning algorithms out there and and so on and so forth, then yeah, certainly a bootcamp can be a good way to do it. Um, you know, there's a there's a question of like, is it worth the money and and so on and so forth. But yeah, happy to get more into this uh, aside as well. Thanks for that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, hi, Megan. I, I just kind of, I guess I've had a similar kind of journey in terms of picking up programming. So kind of the way I went about approaching it was, so I started last year to try and learn Python. And what I did was I first kind of took a course on Coursera on Python. And then it was just like literally practice from there. I don't even think I finished the course before I just jumped into a project. So where I got a project from was, I don't know if you've heard of Kaggle. Mm-mm. Can you type it into the chat so I can see the spelling? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll post a link. But um, yeah, Kaggle is basically a resource where you can get a load of like data science projects and there's loads of tutorials on there as well. But basically, that's how I, I taught myself how to program in Python. And um, there's competitions on there as well. So like when you get a bit more confident, you can enter a competition. It's all free. And you can actually see where you are in terms of like your your machine learning skills compared to all the other competitors, like it ranks your your machine learning model in terms of predictive ability against everyone else. So yeah, that's that that, that that's kind of that helped me a lot. So I w- I would definitely recommend that. Um, but yeah, just start start simple, start maybe with a course or something, and then when you feel like you're getting bored of the course, try and try and do a project. That's great. Thank you. Can I make a quick quick suggestion? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Megan, you mentioned that you are a heavy Excel, um, and I can give you a quick uh, little story for me. Um, is more of a self taught uh, in terms in the world of data, and uh, I'm a big fan of Excel. And I would advise you to start with Power Query. Uh, where you can learn how to manipulate data, do some transformations, uh, ETL jobs, uh, Power Queries inside of Excel. And that's where, uh, that's what um, sparked the uh, creation of Power BI, which is a visualization tool. So uh, you can kind of uh, take a look at where you work right now. uh, If you want to stay there, uh, look at some real use cases, and then start uh, taking the data that you usually work in uh, normally and then start manipulating that data using Power Query. And then Excel still has some good uh, functions uh, to uh, help you predict some values, do some uh, testings, uh, validate those tests, uh, and then you know, start moving into you know, what that looks like in uh, Power BI to kind of visualize uh, your findings so that will give you a good uh, start as you uh, also dig in into a lot of the materials uh, that are out there uh, where you can dig into the different sections of data science because it's a wild field. You'll have to select what you really want to do, uh, just like 
something I was saying, if you want to go into analytics uh, so you can uh, get yourself oriented. But Excel is a great start, in my opinion. Thank you. I think Dave has some great advice on this topic since uh, he wrote the class on it. Well, I don't know if it's great, but it's certainly my advice. That's for sure. Um, so Megan, the first thing I'm going to, I'm going to key off something you said and tell me if I'm over indexing on this. I, I picked up on this idea of, Hey, I want something practical. I don't have two years and $200,000 to spend to <laughs> make this happen. So the first thing I would, I would suggest is sit down and think about what kind of role you want to target. Because if you want to target the, the mythical unicorn data scientist, the competition is tough. And you can do it if that's your passion, but it's going to take a lot of investment and time and effort to grab, get to build the skills that you need. If you're looking for something a little bit more tractable, given the current job situation, in my opinion, you might want to look at a data analyst role at Amazon or Facebook or company XYZ. And generally speaking, based on all the research that I've done on many, many job positions in the analyst category, Excel, SQL, statistics, basic statistics, usually don't anything fancy, and Python or R, generally speaking. And generally speaking, you want to go in that order, Excel, SQL, some basic statistics, and then pick up a programming language. And you can definitely learn the things that you need yourself. Um, if you have a PhD in chemistry, I'm assuming you've got enough math background that that's not going to be a problem. So you can learn everything that you need to yourself if you're motivated and you're diligent in a very cost-effective manner. Now, here's the key though. You need to differentiate yourself somehow. And these days, the best way to do that, in my opinion, and from the people that I talk to is one, pick a business domain, marketing, supply chain, finance, something like that, and pick a business domain and then say, okay, what are the analytics that people commonly do in this space? And learn that in addition to the basics. And then that allows you to say, hey, I've got the skills to actually do the job. And then, of course, and I say this over and over again, once you pick those skills up, advertise your ability to do things using content marketing, right? So do meetup talks, do presentations, keynotes, teach classes for free at uh, some conference if somebody will let you do it. Get those things recorded, get yourself a YouTube channel, which is free, put that up there. And then what people can see is not only does your resume and your LinkedIn profile claim that you can do these things, but you actually have demonstrable proof that you've actually done these things. And that's a very powerful combination. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's that's helpful to know. I'm glad you said that because I, um, yes, you understood correctly <laughs> what my situation is. And um, the things I've been learning are sort of in the order that you've been suggesting. So that's also really great to know that I'm, I'm more or less headed in the right direction. Um, I had looked into data scientists versus data analysts and, and came to the same conclusion. Data scientist is far beyond where um, I, I want to spend time and have time to go at this time at this point in my life. Um, so data analyst just seems much more achievable at this point. Um, so I would add to that something really important that that I think you should hear right now is don't discount the skill that you have gained throughout the course of your PhD because you still have a ton of valuable skills that don't even, you know, touch on the coding stuff. That's just one aspect of it, right? I'm guessing throughout your PhD, you've probably had experience with problem statement, purpose statement, research questions, the hypothesis, research design, analysis, and then making a conclusion, right? All of this is data science. Um, I'm willing to bet you've got skills in all of those. 
it's just one little bit of it, which is just the tooling, right? So the tooling is not hard to acquire. And I wouldn't, you know, quote, unquote, settle if it sounded like you were saying settle for a data. No, 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 no. And, and thank you for that. I, I totally agree. It's the, the coding piece that I'm looking for right now. Um, I'm just being realistic. I think about, um, you know, where I'm at in my career, my education, age, other job history, and just looking at what, um, if I really wanted to go back to school at this point, which I really don't, <laughs> and spend another, as you said, two years and $200,000, maybe that would be a thing. But I don't think so. You can get good at coding in a few months. Right. And, and, and let me add this. And I'm speaking as a former professional software engineer and software architect. So all of you code heads out there, don't yell at me. Don't over-index on the coding. To do analytics, you need almost no software engineering whatsoever. You just don't. Okay. You're not building production systems usually when you're doing analytics. You're typically just writing a, uh, a Python notebook or you're just writing an R script. So don't over-index on that. Focus on actually how to do the analysis efficiently and effectively first, and you can worry about the software engineering stuff later. Yeah, I'll just I'll just echo that and and add that. So data science, right? It's it's much 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 heavier on the science than it is on anything else. Um, the scientific process, you know, being able to uh, sanity check, like gut check, uh, you know, the results that you're coming up with. Those skills, uh, you know, you learned uh, through your chemistry uh, career, and those are going to be very valuable. And then and, uh, related to that, coding is not the hardest part of of that to pick up. So um, I agree with with Harp that you know in a couple months you can go from sort of beginner to a pretty pretty proficient coder um, if you just you know sort of stick to it. So I would definitely like I, I I don't agree with you that data science or data scientist is sort of far and beyond. I think you can definitely get there if you want, and you know it might turn out that you don't enjoy analytics, right? Because. Uh, <laughs> Um, so definitely keep an open mind about that. Um, and one other thing, if you have ever plotted data in Excel and fit a shape to it, you've done machine learning. So also don't discount that. Um, if you have worked with data, you've, you've, you know, you're already ahead of the curve. Dr. Wagner, I'd like to echo that what Dr. Tooley just said is your strongest point. Um, I sent you a LinkedIn connection request. Just because, you know, fellow PhDs, we got to look out for each other. And I can appreciate that. But I got some tips for you. And I think, but I think there's probably more that you can leverage from than you're even seeing right now. That's fantastic. I appreciate all the encouragement. I can use it too, because I, I feel like I keep running into a wall right now, trying to get out of higher ed. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. I can understand that frustration. Keep showing up to office hours and we'll coach you through it. Thanks for the question. Let's go to Anna. Are you still here? Yes. Hi, everyone. Thank you for doing this. Uh, so I started my master's degree in business analytics because uh, ever since I studied economics, I wanted to do something useful with data, but I wasn't sure how. So I ended up in uh, doing financial roles. Um, and uh, well, at the end, I'm, I decided I really, really wanted to start doing some data analytics analysis and some data scientist roles. So I started code, uh, to learn co how to code. I started with C, C Sharp and Java. And then I, uh, I went to data camp and that was very, very useful for me because it, uh, in 
well, uh, it really helped me to understand what was going on. But then um, SQL, I really loved working with it. Uh, it's, uh, it's really good that it's very useful. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm, I'm struggling between R and Python. I've, um, I completed some data analysis courses in R, but as I've seen a lot of roles, they all, all try to use Python. So I don't know if I'm on the front track or not. Carlos was telling me that uh, for finance, uh, I should be, I should stick with Python. So um, yeah, yeah, that's my question. I was going to say, so economics, I love economics. The field is shifting to machine learning is like the thing now, especially for finance, uh, recurrent neural networks, LSTM, all that stuff for finance stuff. And that's all in Python. In grad school, you chose the quant route, which was stats and R, or you chose the finance route, which was like ML and Python. And that was like the division, like that was like second semester, that's your division. So I think you're right to stick with Python um, and do finance stuff. But really... I mean, yeah, you're just going to look for your first job. If you're looking specifically in finance companies, stick with Python, but really try to focus on like the fundamentals and like what's interoperable between the two of them. You might want to look at the higher level stuff like, okay, I'm typing code. Sure. But is it object oriented or am I writing functions? Like, how am I thinking about how I solve these problems? Because the way you program is really the manifestation of how you're thinking about problems can be solved. Um, so object oriented versus functional. It sounds kind of fluffy, but if you just like look a little bit into it, you'll see like, oh, like th those are pretty different ways of getting problems solved. Um, and I, I do think you should do Python, but I like R personally. And I would say just take an inventory of jobs that you find interesting, right? Like just do a search for whatever data scientist jobs in your area and then look at all the ones that you, you look at and you're like, oh man, this looks cool. I like this job print that out on an actual piece of paper and then do that for like 20 different jobs that you find interesting and then take a highlighter, like an actual highlighter and then highlight what they, that role is requiring. And then whichever one wins out, tally it up R1, Python one, right? And whichever one has the most, then you've got your answer right there, right? So it starts with the, you need to have some clarity on what it is that you are trying to do in your career because there are certain roles where I think Python is going to be more necessary and then there are certain roles where r is going to be more necessary um so speaking to the r side of things i'd love to hear from dave where do you see what type of roles do you see using r um predominantly and then i'd love to hear from from monica on this as well so if you take the industry consideration out so for example big pharma is still heavily on SaaS for particular reasons and they're starting to move a little bit towards r so if you take the industry specific stuff out of the equation for a second, generally speaking, it's going to be based on how much coding and whether or not you're writing production code is really going to determine whether Python is going to be like the thing or if people have just latched on it and they just put it in the job description. Because generally speaking, what you're going to find in a lot of analytics roles is if you can do all the job and you can write it in R, but you don't know Python, most of the time the hiring manager is going to be like, okay, no problem. Right? You can do the work. I don't really care how you do it. But if you're working like on a heavy duty software engineering focused team, yeah, Python's probably going to be the ticket. The other thing I would mention too, is if you go down either route, just remember, this is not going to be the last programming language you're going to learn in your career. You're going to learn the next one after Python because it's going to happen. So generally speaking, it's really going to be focused on what the role is. If you're interested in writing and maintaining production code as a machine learning engineer or as a data scientist or whatever the title is, Python's probably a good way to go. If you're more interested in 
doing the analytics and working with the business and focusing on that are based on all of my research and job descriptions is just fine right now. There's no necessarily requirement that you have to have Python. Most job descriptions list R or Python. You just have to know one. So it's really good to be focused on, like Harpreet said, what kind of roles are you interested in? And if they tend to be predominantly production engineering focused, then Python's the way to go. True confession. I, I chose Python just because Python sounded cooler than R. So, um, <laughs> no, I had to do R all throughout grad school. So, you know, to me, it was like, okay, I kind of already knew that. But I mean, Python just sounds freaking cool. Uh, Monica? Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, so, I love the Python and R debate. I actually um, started off in R, and that's only because the group that I was doing a rotation with they were using R, um, but to Dave's point, they didn't really interact with any of the software engineers or anything like that. They just did their analysis within the group. So R was something that worked well for them. Python, um, from my experience, is just a lot more popular and I guess transferable, especially when you're working with other groups, other technical groups. So then you can kind of talk with each other. Um, but yeah, to, to Dave's point, if you want to do the the route where you're uh, interacting with others, I would I guess go with Python. I'm also learning Python now too, just to learn all the things. I got to learn all the things. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just like writing software. I think the, just the idea of writing software is so cool to me. And I just love coding as well. So, you know, I picked up Python for that reason. And now it's like kind of, now I'm like doing a bit of node because I just wanted to learn it and understand it. Right. So it kind of just depends on what your motivations are for your career and where it is that you're trying to go. Um, but yeah, enough of that R versus Python debate. Um, we've talked about, it, I think every single office hour, so you can go back and listen to like the last 15 of them and hear what other people have to say on this. Uh, John, go for it. All right. So yeah, just to give you a bit of background on myself, um, currently working in financial services um, for about seven years now. And um, I've been an analyst pretty much throughout. So first in risk analytics and then in pricing analytics, where I've done quite a lot of behavioral modeling, um, risk modeling, um, things along that side. But it's always kind of just been for analytics purposes and making business decisions or making pricing strategy um, or, you know, informing pricing policy. So now I'm trying to kind of transition into data science roles. So last year I had like several interviews with all the kind of big places, Facebook, Spotify, some consultancies. And a lot of the feedback I got one from a particular consultancy is that like, although I was able to kind of build machine learning models in Jupyter notebooks, um, they weren't like production, they weren't productionizable. So that's kind of where I've become stuck because a lot of the courses you see online and stuff and a lot of the competitions, the Kaggle competitions, they don't really care about being able to productionize your, your models. It's just kind of get, get, get a good answer or get a good predictive model. So the question is really about what's the next stage? Like what's the, what's the, lear- what's the kind of learning curve between where I am now where I can build kind of a machine learning model end-to-end from like data, data cleaning, feature engineering, all the way to training and evaluation, then to move that into production. What's the learning, what's the learning curve between that and the production stage? Yeah, I don't think there's too much of a huge learning curve. I think there might be an intermediate step in between there that 
thing might get overlooked sometimes, and that is just being able to work out of the terminal. Um, so get comfortable with the command line for sure. Um, how about Joe? Do you have any tips on this? Um, I think it depends a lot too on what your production environment looks like and who's going to be uh, benefiting from the model, right? So you do need to consider a few things. Um, uh, a buddy of mine, he runs uh, this, this course. It's full stack deep learning. I would say go check that out. It's awesome. Very awesome. Um, it's part of Berkeley. And, and anyway, that, I think that, that covers a lot of the stuff you'd need to know. But there's, there's a lot of nuance and stuff too, like model debugging, right? Um, and uh, detecting drift, um, you know, late, latency, uh, you know, all the stuff you need to worry about as an engineer. You, know, you need to start considering um, you know, when, you, when you deploy your model. So um, yeah, there's a lot to consider. I, I would say look at like ML ops. That'd be like one uh, thing to go check out. So that's a whole entire universe of rabbit holes that you will uh, be very busy with for a while. So <laughs> in, case, in case it wasn't fun enough, just training models and stuff, now you get to deal with all this other stuff. But if you're in the cloud, are you guys in the cloud or? Uh... So um, where I'm working currently right now, there isn't that capability at all. Um, yeah. We're quite old school. Everyone uses SAS and it's all like DBMS, like, you know, SQL queries, analytics um, in the SAS environment. And then if, if, if need be, we'll spit that out into an Excel model. Um, a lot of stuff I'm talking about, I'm doing in my own time, like just to kind of upskill yeah. myself. Um, so yeah, it, it, it does seem like there's, there's a new, there's a, seems like it is a bit of a rabbit hole because every time I get somewhere with this, I've kind of learned how to yep. do something and I've read a ton of books. And now it's like, oh, wait, but now you have to learn how to, to productionize this. It's like, oh, so. Yeah, it's like they, they call it the Red Queen effect. They think it's like running faster and faster to the same place. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's very much what this is like. Um, I mean, if you wanted to get a good comprehensive look at like what I think is a pretty good end-to-end ML pipeline, like uh, AWS SageMaker um, uh, Studio, I think that's awesome, actually. Um, I mean, there's... There's still, you know, maybe some details it's missing, but I think for the most part, it's mostly there. And I think that would be a, if you want to check out what that actually looks like, I would say just start there. It's awesome. Awesome. And, and also that, just to, to, to clarify as well, like um, where, the, where the kind of ML, I know we've kind of talked about this already, but where the ML pipeline kind of begins and the data engineering stuff ends, because I'm, I'm doing some, I'm doing some stuff on the, the Google Cloud platform as well now. And they have nice. a load of different tools to kind of bring data in um, from different sources and pull it into BigQuery. And then obviously you can write notebooks and stuff from BigQuery. So yeah, I'm just that kind of seems like there's even before you kind of bring the data into BigQuery, there's a whole host of stuff that kind of looks yeah. like data engineering, you know. So the data, so like, like Matt and I, we've done uh, Google Cloud Partners and we we've done their certs and all that fun stuff. They have like, the, the interesting notion, I think, that Google does a really good job is their certification process. They actually distinguish between a data engineer and a machine learning engineer. Yeah. Right? And data engineering, I would say, is like everything up to BigQuery as well as uh, analytics and maybe setting things up so you can do machine learning on it. But the ML engineer would take over after that. Um, in GCP, though, like BigQuery is definitely the hub where like all your structured, semi-structured data should go. They don't. I mean, if you have the option, just use it. Um, and that's the hub where you would basically get all your data for the model training or analysis or anything else. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Also, but yeah, the distinction definitely is like after. So anything in like AI platform, for example, and GCP is like that's ML engineering or data science at that point. Awesome. That makes sense. Yeah. And the other cool thing is if you're in BigQuery, check out BQML. You can just write machine learning code in, in SQL. Yeah, I've seen that. I find it well confusing. I'm not going to lie. I find it so confusing. But I guess that's because I, I kind of posted it via Python first. But um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> walkthroughs yeah. on BQML and some of the other tools, the walkthroughs are really good for getting a sense of how to do something basic like uh, multi-factor regression, for example. And then the next should be just try to push some data into BigQuery and see if you can get make any mm-hmm. sense of it. They have a lot of public data sets in, the, in BigQuery too that you can uh, dork around on. So mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. I think I'm about to say this last week, but look into the Kedro package. It's it just provides you a nice framework yeah. for you to begin to start thinking about how to write production quality code. There's a YouTube channel that teaches it really well um, by somebody called Data Engineer One, and this concept of of pipelines and nodes and treating what you're doing as a as a DAG as a directed acyclic graph is very, very helpful. So couple that with just getting really good working out of the command line. I think you'll be making that transition from notebook to production code fairly, fairly quickly. Um, I'm wondering if, Shantana, do you have any tips on this, how to, how to go from notebook data science to production level? Um, for me, I, this was something that I was I was scared of. Like, yeah, I mean, like, so the, the thing about notebooks is that you can just sort of see as you're going, you know, you can see, you can get the immediate uh, effect. Uh, but with um, uh, Python files, for example, it uh, is more abstracted away. You know, you have to trace back your, your errors to the right place and stuff. So for me, what, what helped me with gaining confidence is getting better and better at debugging um, and following those those error messages. So uh, just do it. And then uh, as you iterate, you'll get you'll get better at it. So do you like when you when you write a Python script in like, I don't know what you use, like PyCharm or whatever, do you? start in the notebook and move over because i've tried that approach as well like starting in the notebook and then moving it over once yeah. i'm kind of happy with it yeah, yeah i've definitely I'm, done that and i still often do that for sure all right makes sense and uh, i just want to mention like many companies actually use notebooks in production right like databricks is meant for that so it's uh you can definitely take those skills uh pretty far too okay thank you so Shantan, I've got a question for you though, because you've got experience working with this with just massive, massive, like petabyte scale data um, from when you're at CERN. So if you, if you had like a, a huge data set, like petabyte scales with hundreds of thousands of features, how do you even begin analysis on a data set of that size? Yeah. Um, so with, with particle physics, uh, it, like if we didn't have the physics, it would be impossible. Right. So having that domain knowledge really helps with uh, very large data sets, uh, knowing, you know, how to get to the meat of the data uh, even before you sort of started looking uh, with uh, data sets that you sort of pick up from Kaggle or elsewhere. It's a bit harder because you don't come in with the domain knowledge, but, you know, um, definitely start with a smaller section. Right. Like siphon off a little bit, you know, maybe random sample or, or, or whatever, and, and just get your eyes on what the data actually looks like. Um, and, uh, you know, then eventually you can incorporate more and more of the data. That's that's one way to do it that I've done before. So maybe like take like a, a random sample of this petabyte scale data and then 
do some statistical methods for feature selection, maybe chi-squared or mutual information or things like that, and then extrapolate from your sample set to the entire data set? Yeah. So slowly getting, the more time you spend with a given data set, the more you know, you're going to know about it and, and more familiar you're going to get with it. So just, you know, starting somewhere like my favorite Python uh, commands or pandas commands is, you know, head. Right. So just just <laughs> taking a look at look at the data goes a long way. So if, if you wanted to do some quick feature selection methods, say variance threshold, standard deviation method or, or something like that. Are you able to to do these vectorized computations relatively quickly on a petabyte scale data set or would it still make sense to do random samples um yeah i would still start with uh with this so yeah now we're now we're getting into uh more specifics but if you really have to come to a data set like completely blind about like the context you know and that that's just a bad idea right usually that's that's a very unnatural thing if you have if you're working at a, at a company there's some business context around the data that you're going to be looking at so you should always come in with with some information but you if you have to come in blind um i can't think of a better way than to just i mean if, if you if you literally can't hold uh, everything in you know in memory at once i mean spark of course helps um with, with that uh but yeah I, I would look at a subset and then yeah definitely looking at correlations um you know how different features play play with each other. Um, oh, another thing that really helps is coming up with hypotheses. Uh, you know, if you sort of don't have uh, a theory for what you might see, then you just sort of don't know where to start looking or, you know, what to approach. So coming up with hypotheses of what you might expect from a given data set and then sort of working to validate those. Awesome. Thank you very much. We've got time for one more question if anybody has a question. Ashen had a question, but I think he said it was answered in the chat. I see a leftover question from Christian. Um, I'll go ahead and, and I'll ask this question. I'll leave it open for anybody who wants to contribute to it. He says, if you were to try to roll out good data governance at a large organization that does not have data in its DNA, what would be the first few key milestones you'd want to strive for? And also anyone who would be the most important champions in the organizations in your mind, C-suite, revenue, IT leaders. Um, I'll leave this open for anybody to, to tackle. Uh, just really like to, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. If you're new to data science, you don't want to find yourself in that role. <laughs> so if you're new to data science, don't take on that project. Monica, go for it. Yeah. So I've been in those types of roles where we're trying to, you know, data governance at an enterprise level. And the first thing that you really want to do is get, all of the stakeholders on board, you need to have that support and the want for that culture to change. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere uh, from there. So what we, uh, the, one of the first things that we did was do roadshows. So we put together kind of a plan of, you know, what is data governance? Why do we need to do this? Why is it important to treat data as an asset within this company? Um, the benefits uh, to do so and and why that helps, and then do that within all of the different departments within the organization to kind of shift that culture. And then from there, once you get everybody on board, then you can start getting into the weeds. And, you know, if you need a tool to help you to get that tool in place um, and then get everybody through, um, you know, getting together their data dictionaries and whatnot. Thank you very much. 
Any other questions? I see Ben Taylor joining in at the exact last minute here. Ben, thank you for, for making it. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it open for a... Uh, I've got a very quick question, Harpreet. Yeah, definitely go for it. So it's kind, of, it's kind of building on one of the things that uh, Dave Langer said earlier on, that, you know, um, learn the languages now, but there's going to be a new language. Uh, so I'm just wondering, given all the advances with machine learning and, and all tech, how long might it be before we actually just speak to our computer and say, go give me that data set, do this and give me these insights, and you don't actually have to type code in yourself? I see people uh, laugh. Yeah. <laughs> a long time. A very long time. When is Neuralink coming out? Because then I could just think about what I want and make it happen. That'd be awesome. Um, but no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, ben, if you are here and want to tackle that, go for it. Oh, when is Neuralink coming out? Well, so Elon gives you an estimate and then you can be hopeful and love Elon for it. And then he times it by 10 or whatever. <laughs> I think so, my, my, did you catch Russell's question by any chance? Oh, I, I didn't. Sorry, my audio yeah. was all screwed up. Oh, no worries. Russell, what was yeah, yeah well, sure. So, so it was just about um, uh, the evolution of different um, programming languages uh, within uh, data science and ML. How long might it be before you can pick up your microphone and tell your computer, go get me this data set and give me these insights and you don't actually have to code anything directly yourself? Yeah, I, I love this question. So um, one of the, thing, the things that's limiting us there is the automatic speak rec recognition. Like it still makes, it, it still makes mistakes and there are research groups that have reported superhuman accuracy. And so super, superhuman accuracy, I think it's 3% word error rate. And so a word error rate is an insertion, a deletion, or a substitution. And you're giving the natural language processing a gift, but if you have any of that, it just screws it all up, the downstream. Like it's very hard for natural language processing to do much with it, but we're so close. Um, so I would say this decade, definitely. Hey ben, uh, let me I, ask this question wow. yeah. on context and, and uh, speech recognition. I mean, what progress has been made on understanding the context of speech? Because I noticed that YouTube is still terrible at this. You can be watching a video on a physics topic and it messes up all the physics words. Yeah, so that, that falls into the language model. And so to, to help people kind of, I, I love automatic speech recognition. We did it at higher view. And unfortunately, this is one of these uh, challenges that a lot of people in the data science community don't get to play with. And I would say the reason they don't get to play with it is the data sets aren't freely available. So if you want to play with ImageNet, anyone on the call, go download ImageNet tonight and go play with it. If you want to play, build an automatic speech recognition for English, you don't have access to it. So the way these work is you have an acoustic model that converts the, the audio into letters and you have a language model. So the thing that you hit on, Matt, is the language model. So the language model is very sensitive to what are the possible words in the word universe? If I say something and it's misunderstood, it has to make some assumptions. And so what you find for specialty topics like data science, it's going to be lacking where it's going to have a hard time. So at higher view, we definitely saw, we dealt with, eventually we trained our own in-house. Um, it's super exciting. The, the other thing we see with automatic speech recognition is it can lag with some of the adoptions. So you have really cool things coming online, like transformers and other things. And there's a little bit of a delay for some of that stuff to trickle down. Maybe there's less of a delay now. So I'm, I'm being a little naive because I, I was in this space really deeply six years ago. I haven't been buried in white papers on automatic speech recognition within the last couple of years. So if I may be so bold, Russell, to add this, take all of the, let's assume for the sake of argument that we have automatic speech recognition and it's 100% accurate. Okay, cool. When I sit across this table from a business person, 
and we can't actually communicate at 100% accuracy regarding what analytics and what insights are actually being generated, I think it might be a little tough for the computer to do that for a while. Yeah, comp- comprehending yeah. is a big problem. It, the, the fascinating thing with speech is it really does try to use the context of the conversation to make a prediction. So when speech recognition is working, it's not working on the word-to-word level. It has a very w- wide horizon. It's consuming everything that's being said. I, I forgot what our horizons were at higher view, but it's like 50 words or or longer. Just like a human, if I say the word night, no one on the call knows what I'm talking about. But if I say the black night... And a little bit closer, you still don't know. But if I say the black light with armor, you're like, aha, I now know what you're talking about. Like you need, there's context around everything for comprehension, but computers suck at comprehending anything today. Amazon, um, Amazon just released this feature with Alexa where now they're starting to ask for, Alexa will start asking for context. Do, do you think it's uh, good? That's awesome. Yeah. So if it doesn't understand, say, hey, can you tell me what you mean? Give me more. So before I answer you, so I yeah, think that's we're great. going in the right direction. Well, um, the other thing too, hopefully I don't, hopefully I don't get in trouble from Greg, but the, the Alexa is actually, it has a huge advantage because of the hardware. So controlling the hardware is very important. So uh, I forget the exact details, but I think inside the Alexa, if you decide to rip it apart, there's four microphones in there. They're very, very intentional on controlling the hardware. Uh, automatic speech recognition is very difficult. If I just randomly send you an audio slug, even Alexa is not going to get it um, Like for that type of machine learning on the back end. But because they control the hardware, that really allows them to nail. And I, and I imagine, hopefully behind the scenes, I imagine there's some continuous learning in, in ways that they're improving the system over time. The, the last thing I'll throw out there, GPT-3 is writing code. So it'll write some cute Python code that'll execute. And right now I put it in the category cute. But I think during the next 10 years, we're going to be dealing with, I want to wake up in the morning, pour my coffee and have a conversation with my house where I'm assigning it objectives and asking it questions. And if I needed to go scrape something, it's hammering away. And if it has to figure out a loophole, it'll actually go contract some humans within my budget to go plug in some scraping software. Uh, I guess scraping is one of those topics we don't talk about, right? (laughs) I don't scrape anymore. No, just, just not scraping the entire internet user data. I know Florin's in here. Yeah. Florin, I, I can't help you with that question. All right, guys. Uh, well, thank you very much. So last call for questions. If anybody has a last minute question, then this is going to be the time. Um, I'll give you an opportunity to type it into the chat if you have a question. If not, please check out the episode that was dropped today with Sundas Khaled. If you I think all of you here are subscribed to the newsletter, so check out the newsletter. Lots of great resources on there. Um, there's specifically a call to action with the the song of the week on there. If you guys could help me out with that, I really appreciate it. Go click on that link to go listen to that Akira the Dawn song, and then comment on YouTube that the artist of data science sent me here, so that I can get him on the podcast. You guys can help make this happen. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for coming and hanging out. Uh, excellent questions today. Excellent discussion. As usual, this will be up on the podcast and on YouTube. And there's so much great content in the chat that I will make sure that I link to the chat as well. Take care, everybody. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? And I'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Great job. Thank you.